paper by Chris Mink and Sarah Gallagher. Yeah, yeah. And it's this collaboration. It's, by the way, again, a collaboration between a philosopher and an astrophysicist. Uh, and uh, their paper is about um, what they call the problem of unsimulated alternatives. They describe this kind of issue um, in using simulations to reconstruct sort of like potential uh, evolutionary histories, I think. Uh, of, of quasars. Particular, of quasars, exactly, yeah. yeah. And so um, uh, one thing that they sort of point out is that like, you know, we may have some successful simulations of quasars, but in fact, if you look at the whole possibility space of potential model scenarios for how if, uh, of how quasars evolve, um, there's a whole swath of that possibility space that we actually don't know what the model would predict because we don't have the resources to simulate it. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 76. This episode is with Nora Boyd, Siska de Berdemaker, and Vera Miltoreze. And Nora is assistant professor of philosophy at Siena College. Siska is a researcher at Stockholm University. And Vera is assistant professor in philosophy of science at the University of Perugia. Both Nora and Siska received their PhDs in history and philosophy of science from the University of Pittsburgh, while Vera received hers in the philosophy of science at the University of Hong Kong. So along with Kevin Hang, who is professor of theoretical astrophysics at the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, and who is also guest on episode 56 of the podcast, they're the editors of Philosophy of Astrophysics, which is an upcoming anthology on the philosophy of the same, and actually the first of its kind on the philosophy of astrophysics. And it's going to be released open access in early June. Tentatively, there isn't a precise date yet. I think Nora believes June 3rd, but the link is in the description. Open access means it's freely available. So you should bookmark it. And I will announce its release on an introduction that is closer to that time. In my episode with Kevin, number 56, we really talked about the profession of astrophysics and what he does. And Kevin is a researcher of exoplanets, and these are planets that orbit a star that is not our star. And he does a lot of research into their atmospheres. But on this episode, we talk much more about the philosophy of astrophysics itself and we really run the gamut there so we talk about all the cool stuff black holes dark matter comets and then the philosophy that goes along with it but we begin with some of the basics of astrophysics beyond uh, professional life because i cover that with kevin but a bit about how astrophysics arose what differentiates it from uh, physics, uh, astronomy, some some other relevant and close areas, and then some of the early philosophical treatments of astrophysics. And then we get into more of those interesting philosophical questions. So one, for instance, is what sort of ontological commitment ought we to have to objects like black holes? And if you're not familiar with that, philosophical parlance and ontological commitment is 
something like, do we want to admit it into our inventory of the world of the things that exist? And while the podcat here pins, I can see her, I can touch her. I have pretty much pretty good evidence in as much as I have any evidence for anything in the external world existing. But it's not quite the same with black holes because we can't see them, we can't touch them, we can't manipulate them in a laboratory. All we have is uh, spectral readings. Perhaps we can we can see the way that they affect nearby matter. They function quite importantly in our models of galaxy formation or just how how galaxies work but like i said we can't see or touch them so do we want to really think of them as real objects or fictions in some sense if we can't verify their existence and there there are all sorts of questions like this Uh, some other topics that we touch on are how we ought to modify our theories when we have conflicting evidence or insufficient evidence or new evidence. There are lots of questions around here. And another that comes to mind is how we ought to think of scientific models and how we ought to use them. Because a model is necessarily, and not talking here in a mathematical sense because that's different, but in a scientific sense, a model is an abstraction from reality and as such it loses all not all of but much of the complexity of the phenomena the phenomenon or the phenomena that it models and what sort of weight should we give to models how ought we to think the world is based on what a model tells us should we treat them as metaphors or figurative in some sense? There are, there are a lot of questions here and Siska, Vera, Nora, who have done a lot more thinking about it than I have, have a lot more to say about it. Anyway, there are a lot of questions. Hopefully you'll check the book out when it comes out. Oh, actually, I also have to mention that reviews, comments, all of those things are greatly appreciated. And I have that second channel, Robinson Eats, where I eat ice cream and talk with whoever shows up on Twitch and YouTube. Now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Nora, Siska, and Vera. audio listeners and people who aren't going to watch the video i think it would be nice i've i've seen this done on other podcasts where if you each just said hi and your name so people get to know your voices before we start so nora maybe you could start everybody i'm nora (laughs) uh siska hi i'm siska and vera hello i'm vera So there's a cluster of sciences that often get lumped together, at least for the uninitiated. So I'm thinking of astronomy, astrophysics, uh, cosmology, maybe even we'd want to throw physics in there as well. But 
what distinguishes these from one another and where does astrophysics fit in? Why does it stand out in particular? Oh, Siska answers this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can give it a try and then you can all correct me. So um, they're obviously, I'll focus on cosmology, astrophysics, and astronomy, because um, I think that's most relevant. And they're obviously related to each other. Um, but uh, to get some basic distinctions out of the way, like sort of roughly what distinguishes them, first, astronomy is just the um, observational science of mapping out uh, astronomical bodies, so like galaxies, stars, etc. Mm -hmm. um, astrophysics, on the other hand, tries to uh, reconstruct the evolution of these observed bodies, right? So where astronomers will um, try to uh, identify stars and measure sizes of galaxies, astrophysicists will be interested in, well, how do stars evolve, right? And how does, for instance, nuclear physics um, that goes on inside stellar cores affect the evolution of stars over time? And then you have cosmology, which is, um, broadly speaking, the study of the evolution of the universe at the largest scale. Um, and so it's obviously very related to both astronomy and astrophysics because, well, the observations that cosmologists use as input for their um, models and theories are astronomical observations. And um, whatever your theory of the universe at the largest scale says, it's at some point related to what happens at smaller scales that astrophysicists are interested in, right? So for instance, uh, what how galaxies evolve um, is like a zoomed in version of uh, what happens at the largest scales. So these three are obviously related to each other. Um, how does, like what's specific about astrophysics? Uh, well, what's specific about astrophysics is that it um, uh, it's, it's, I think it's especially that it sort of sits in between both astronomy and cosmology. So like on the one hand, it is not purely um, just observations. It is also trying to uh, give like an explanatory story, right, of evolution for astrophysical bodies. But at the same time, it's also slightly um, uh, different from cosmology in the sense that um, we are, have more objects to study, right? So uh, theories of stellar evolution talk about classes of stars. They don't talk about one single star, whereas sometimes they might, but generically they don't. Um, whereas in cosmology, right, one of the big issues that cosmologists tend to have is, well, they only have one universe uh, that they can at least observationally access. Um, and so astrophysics sort of sits in between these different sciences. So that's like one aspect that make us, makes astrophysics sort of different from, say, cosmology and from astronomy on the other hand as well. Um, but yeah, Nora, Vera, I don't know if you guys want to add to this too. <laughs> I think that's really nice, Siska. I mean, I, I would maybe just add that like maybe a kind of pithy way to put it might be that um, astronomy you could think of as a kind of cartographic exercise like map making we're interested in you know measuring the brightness and positions of of things in the sky but on the other hand um astrophysics is much more concerned with causal processes and um you know trying to understand as Cisco was saying like um you know how these things evolve and and then that and then for me cosmology is sort of doing both things like there's a cartographic project in cosmology for sure um, you know, these large scale mapping surveys that help us understand the evolution of the universe. But we are, are, are also interested in 
like what is driving, you know, the overall evolution of the universe. So there, there is a causal story there too. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, maybe I will just add, it was a kind of difficult task sometimes to decide whether like contribution was like more cosmology or more into astrophysics. So even for us, you know, maybe uh, like the lines are, are very subtle and they're not that definite. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. <clears throat> well, when I, when I spoke with Kevin, he mentioned, well, we were speaking about how astrophysicists work and what the profession is like and he broke it down into three components if i recall recall correctly and there were there are the instrument builders on the one hand who i i take it are more engineers and then there were the observers and i take it that they're the astronomers and then there are the theoreticians who are the astrophysicists the and the cosmologists i would gather now so we're here today largely to talk yeah maybe Maybe oh. because I I think I know Kevin. Maybe what <laughs> he meant was that within astrophysics you can find the three different uh, categories. Okay. Uh, but yeah, uh, I mean yeah. definitely like cosmologists are more like into theory, like or yeah. I mean of course uh, they also rely lots on observation and. Um, but yeah, I think that maybe he meant that within astrophysics, you can find like the instrument to build this and yeah, then yeah. The, the physicists who just observe and then the, the, mm -hmm. the ones that make theories. And... Mm -hmm. So we're here today largely to talk about uh, the anthology of astrophysics that the three of you have been working on. Maybe the distinction, historically speaking, uh, between when astronomy became astrophysics is a bit blurry, but at least for our concerns, uh, there are some of humanity's first real scientific endeavors, yet only now in 2023 is the, the first anthology on the philosophy of astrophysics coming out. And why do you think it's coming together now? Is there some deeper reason as to why the philosophy of astrophysics hasn't been conceived of as its own subject until relatively recently? I think we all have a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> oh, no, well, that's good everybody. then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe one thing to talk about here is that... Um, you know, philosophy of cosmology has actually been fairly, you know, I, I don't know, a fairly fruitful field for quite some time at this point. And so, um, you know, what's really new about the volume is that we're, we're trying to encourage this kind of recent spike in work in philosophy of astrophysics, but the philosophers, philosophy of cosmology has been happening for a while. So, um, and a lot of that has been in connection to just um, philosophers of physics thinking about general relativity and, um, you know, problems about causality and singularities and, um, you know, what the, what general relativity affords in terms of the global structure of space-time and the, you know, underdetermination problems there. And, you know, there's this whole suite of interesting um, work, like I'm thinking, I love the work by J.B. Manchek on this stuff where he talks about oh, yeah. um, the global structure of space-time. At and, Irvine? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then there's also been work by, I know Chris Smink is 
um, one of the main figures in the philosophy of cosmology world. And he's been working on um, the cosmic microwave background and thinking more empirically about um, cosmology. But that work's been happening for some time. And it is sort of interesting that, <laughs> um, I mean, and Siska can tell you more about this, but like, the, you know, there, there were some early papers um, that go decades back that I think we would consider philosophy of astrophysics. Right. Um, but, but there really has been like this sort of rapidly growing interest in this field very, very recently. And one of my suspicions about it is just that, um, you know, I mean, there's, there's a kind, I think there's, in, in part, there's going to be a kind of cultural sociological explanation for this within philosophy of science. So like um, philosophy of science as a whole has taken in recent years, a pretty hard turn towards um, thinking about science in practice. So instead of talking about, you know, the relationship between evidence E and theory T and, you know, explanation in general or whatever, um, a lot of philosophers of science have turned to thinking about, um, you know, the kind of nitty gritty details of experiments, the nitty gritty details of simulations and scientific reasoning. And, um, you know, not, not to go so far as, you know, to become sociologists and to just, um, you know, try to uh, ignore the normative questions or something like that, but, um, but to rather bring in all of these details about science and practice into um, uh, to bear on our, the more general philosophy of science questions that people have had for a very long time about explanations and models and whatever. Um, so I think studying astrophysics through that lens is, is very like, astrophysics lends itself to doing philosophy in that way because um, there's all kinds of interesting um, research that you can just dive into and puzzles that arise sort of from the ground up within the research itself that are philosophically interesting. So um, for a kind of practice-oriented philosopher of science, it's just like a really kind of natural field um, where you're not thinking necessarily about, you know, to go back to the contrast with philosophy of cosmology, you're not necessarily thinking about just what the theories afford or thinking about the logical relationships between um, uh, aspects of theories or different theories or whatever, but you're you're really thinking about what are these guys studying right now or in recent times or in relevant history, and what did that reasoning process actually look like on the ground, um, and what can we do with that philosophically? So I think that's part of what's happening. I think there's also, and maybe this is more controversial, and I'm curious to hear what Siska and Vera say about it, but we, I think we've noticed that, okay, so one other thing is that um, you know, the Black Hole Institute at Harvard has is, is been um, hugely helpful, I think, in um, getting a bunch of this really cool research going. So they've got philosophers and astrophysicists in the same, you know, in the same pod, <laughs> in the same building, on the same floor, working in the same research group meetings. Um, this is, uh, you know, Peter Gallison is over there hosting and bringing a bunch of interesting philosophers through. Jamie Elder has been doing this incredible work on um, black holes and there's many other people working on that stuff there. But so I think that's part of what's going on recently is that um, the Harvard Black Hole um, Initiative has uh, been churning out a bunch of work in philosophy of astrophysics. But the, but the kind of more controversial thing that I wanted to say was that, you know, I mean, I think we've noticed, um, Siska and I have talked about this at, at various points that, 
um there's like a lot of fl- women philosophers of science who are doing I noticed I noticed in the anthology is great <laughs> yeah we noticed this early on Siska and I ho- hosted a um an early career like uh a conference at the center for philosophy of science at Pittsburgh a few years ago and um we we did it in part because I think we recognized that there were a bunch of women and we also wanted to support that. Um, and, and I'm sort of curious about why that is. I mean, <laughs> I don't really, like, I don't have a good uh, explanation uh, of it yet. I mean, I have some vague thoughts about it. Like, you know, it might just be, for example, that as more women come into philosophy of science, we're like looking around for projects and this work hasn't been done yet. And so, you know, being a kind of frontier where there's a lot of interesting problems to solve that haven't been overpicked, that's where you end up kind of getting some that interest. Of it. But anyway, it's just something I've noticed and something I'm really curious about and would like to study at some point, you know, like, why is this happening? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Nora said a lot of really interesting things about why now. Um, and let me just like add on some things that she mentioned. So uh, especially so on the philosophy of cosmology already being a very like quite a fruitful discipline for for several decades at this point. I think that's absolutely right. But I think that even in philosophy of cosmology, we see a similar kind of turn towards uh, practice and towards like observational cosmology. So there's a lot of work in philosophy of cosmology nowadays that's on computer simulations. Uh, and some of the people who actually contribute to our anthology work yeah. on these issues in uh, philosophy of cosmology slash astrophysics. I think that's sort of more boundary work, like Helen Meskidze, Kevin Kalawaki, Marie Guéguin. Yeah. Um, I have questions people... about the specifics that we'll we'll get into there. Yeah, but, okay. Yeah. Great. Great. Yeah. So, so like in in cosmology, we also see sort of this practice turn in philosophy of cosmology that that we see in astrophysics. Um, I also think that's it, that it's important to recognize that like. You're absolutely right that astronomy is one of the oldest scientific disciplines, uh, probably. But at the same time, if you look over what happened in the last century alone, um, uh, huge, huge advances have been made over the past 100 years. Like, I think uh, it's been about 100 years now that we actually know more or less definitively that the universe is bigger than the Milky Way, that there are galaxies outside yeah. of the Milky Way. Like that's not that that's long, huge. right? <laughs> that we've known that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's pretty short time scale if you think about it. Um, uh, and like even more recently, right? Gravitational waves, right? First detection yeah. was 2015, um, like mid 2000, uh, 2010. Yeah. Pulse Taylor Pulsar, yeah. Yeah, okay. But, um, <laughs> LIGO gravitational wave detection. Yeah, you're right. Sorry, you're right, Nora. Um, so like th- that, I think, is also something important to take into account. Is like the leaps and bounds that that the science has taken is definitely also relevant. But okay. yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's sort of a, a practice turn that we see in the like sort of closely adjacent philosoph- philosophical disciplines that I think is really important, and uh, also just like the scientific uh, progress and advances that have been made. Uh, over so such a short period of time mm-hmm. yeah and to also maybe something that i would like to add is also like the growing interest from the astrophysics community into this uh, interdisciplinary uh discipline uh, philosophy of physics i mean philosophers really need 
physicists, in this case, astrophysicists, to be open-minded, to like fund our research sometimes, to create reading groups, like what Nora was saying about the um, initiative in Harvard. And uh, like in my case, it was because Kevin Hang was interested in uh, like uh, this interdisciplinary project, and I had a um, supervisor who was a philosopher, but also astrophysicist and cosmologist. So, you know, like, so I think that it's also the right time because the astrophysics community has really um, nurturing this desire to talk to philosophers, to engage with philosophers. Mm. And it's through that support that Vera was getting. Um, um through kevin that she started this you had a conference first right there a workshop and then we had this series of talks and carried on a reading group and that's um how this volume came about was you know that's how we met vera i had never met vera before and how we ended up working together on this project was like through that support that um came out of her working with kevin so i think yeah and then you know he he funded the book to be open access through the um <laughs> Center for Space and Habitability at, at Bern. So, I mean, this is, yeah, I think this is a really important point, Vera, about like how the um, collaborations between the two disciplines can, you know, lead to really fruitful work. And that's mm -hmm. certainly true in our case. <laughs> it sounds like the, similarly with the Black Hole Initiative at Harvard. Yeah. <clears throat> Ian Hacking wrote some of the first analytic philosophy of astrophysics papers. And I saw that he didn't think particularly well of astrophysics, it seemed. He even wrote that it wasn't a natural science. And I also saw, Nora, that you wrote a paper partially in response to this, your paper, Laboratory Astrophysics, uh, Lessons for Epistemology of, Epistemology of Astrophysics. So first, maybe you could you you three could tell me what how uh in substantiated this quite uh pejorative treatment <laughs> of astrophysics and then yeah i'm i'm also quite curious about the laboratory component of astrophysics cuz you can't really at least uh at least it's not obvious how you're going to be doing experiments on quasars or these huge astronomical phenomenon phenomena in a lab. Siska, do you want to talk about hacking? I can briefly <laughs> talk about it, but you should like take talk more about this, Nora. So um, hacking uh, in the 1980s uh, wrote several comments about astrophysics in various ways. So at the end of her presenting and intervening, like it's like the final two or three paragraphs, like literally at the very, very end of the book, he briefly, briefly touches on astrophysics and astronomy and just like, is quite negative about it, um, uh, but like doesn't really develop this. Um, but then in 1989, he writes a follow-up, like he writes a full paper about this. And um, in that paper, he uh, this talks about gravitational lensing as sort of a case study, but the whole setup of the paper basically is about the impossibility of manipulation in astrophysics um, and astronomy. And as a result of that, right, given uh, Hacking's like entity realism and, and views about the um, 
uh, about scientific method related to that entity realism, um, thinks that uh, uh, like they have no that these disciplines have no hope of ever becoming a real science. Um, and he makes these comments about how other sciences have evolved since the scientific revolution, but um, astronomy and astrophysics have sort of stuck in this old paradigm of saving the phenomena and not being able to do anything else. And there's like a bunch of zingers in that paper where um, he says things like, you know, um, uh, experimentation uh, within the Milky Way is at best science fiction, extragalactic experimentation is a bad joke. You know, like he, he says things like that. And so it's really, really, really pejorative. I have to say that like a couple of days ago, I learned through um, uh, Mike Schneider, who's a philosopher of uh, cosmology as well. Um, he pointed out that hacking in 1988 has a paper for the PSA um, where he talks about sort of uh, feminist critiques of uh, philosophy of science and of science. And actually um, in a very, very, and, and sort of, um, starts arguing against this sort of like manipulating science in the and like putting the natural world in the lab and so this sort of manipulating paradigm that in fact he's quite known for and actually mentions that um astronomy and astrophysics and evolutionary biology are probably like he's very sympathetic to the criticism and actually mentions astronomy and astrophysics and evolutionary biology as potentially better suited um, to embody this sort of like alternative vision that's not as huh. much focused on like twisting the lion's tail kind of language. <laughs> I was very surprised by this, yeah. if, if you then read the 1989 paper, but I just wanted to like throw it out there because it was interesting. Some astrophysicist really offended him in the meanwhile. In that year. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's so much to say here. Like, I, I, I feel like I first want to say how much I absolutely love Ian Hacking and how much for me, he's one of these people who, um, you know, is totally genre setting. He's one mm. of the best, um, like actual writers in philosophy of science that I can think of. I mean, his papers are so engaging. I aspire to that level of like craftsmanship in terms of writing. And so um, I like you know, we like to pick on this particular paper in philosophy of astrophysics, but I don't want anyone to walk away with the impression that like, I don't absolutely adore Ian Hacking in his work. So, um, but I think, uh, yeah, I mean, he, right, Hacking is famous for this idea that if you can spray them, they're real. And for, you know, really emphasizing the, the um, importance of intervention and manipulation for, um, uh, for good science and you know he thinks it's like you'd be crazy to think you'd be crazy not to be a realist about the things that you can manipulate in order to investigate other things and this is a really powerful and interesting argument and sometimes it sounds like he's saying um not just that but that you know um our best science and and in this astrophysics piece like maybe our only <laughs> our only uh, good empirical science comes from manipulating so this does pose a kind of prima facie problem for astrophysics and, and cosmology um, and astronomy. And I think uh, there has been a lot of reflection on that paper and that sort of line of thinking in this recent scholarship on philosophy of astrophysics. Um, and there's a couple other papers besides mine in our volume that deal with this too. Um, so, um, what Shannon Abelson has a paper on it also, and is there's one more at the end too that is about that is actually really useful about this. But anyway, so we, it, it, this idea from hacking will pop up in a bunch of places in the volume. Mm -hmm. um, 
but yeah, I mean, I got curious in this because um, I, before I went to grad school for history and philosophy of science, I worked in a nuclear physics lab that was called the Center for Experimental Nuclear Physics and Astrophysics. And I was a research engineer at this lab <laughs> for, for several years. And so I was like actively doing um, laboratory astrophysics. And so the, this idea that there aren't any experiments yeah. in astrophysics mm -hmm. was sort of personally foreign to me. <laughs> so I wanted to kind of investigate that. Um, and so like part of, yeah, part of the project is to just note that um, there's this whole field of laboratory astrophysics. So I'm thinking of things like sort of rich world of nuclear astrophysics where um, folks use particle accelerators to study, you know, resonances and decay chains that are relevant to astrophysics. Um, so, you know, is, to processes and stars. That, yeah. <laughs> is this a place where the line blurs between astrophysics and physics? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a really nice way to think about it. I mean, one way that I've come to think about astrophysics is just that it's um, physics applied to celestial bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and often and think, on a much larger scale. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but I think that there are ways of doing empirical research where you're answering questions in physics that are also astrophysical questions. Um, and I think the nuclear physics particle accelerator cases are examples mm -hmm. of that. Um, yeah, and so I um, I was kind of thinking about those examples and like these are experiments and th these people are doing astrophysics. So let's try and make sense of like what what's that what is the reasoning here? Um, is it just because it, it's tempting to say in those cases like okay, well maybe they're just doing physics and it has astrophysical implications. And so I wanted to try and see like is no is there really a sense in which we want to say that these are astrophysical experiments even though people aren't like literally smashing galaxies together and so that's what that paper tries to do and i, I look in particular at this case from um, the national ignition facility which i initially picked because it just seemed totally rad it's like <laughs> these guys in california shining a bunch of really powerful lasers on targets in a laboratory in order to try to um, generate the same sort of conditions that you'd have um, in supernovae. And so uh, I was just sort of curious about this research and um, looked into it and realized that, um, you know, there are these really powerful similarity arguments that you can make within hydrodynamics um, where you can, uh, if certain criteria are met, systems that might be materially really different um, can instantiate in some sense, the very same physics. And this is something that, you know, isn't just, um, doesn't just happen in this particular experiment that I looked at, this happens all the time. And um, Susan Sterrett has done some really great philosophy of science on this that I draw on um, significantly in the paper. But um, I, I figured like that's what's happening in these sort of cases is that um, the, the physicists need to make the argument that the right sort of criteria are being met in the systems that they're in the astrophysical systems and the laboratory systems such that the very same physics is instantiated in both. Um, but unfortunately, like for the for this particular <laughs> um, this particular case that I happened to choose, what they were trying to study was um, the Raleigh-Taylor instability, this particular hydrodynamic instability under um, high energy flux conditions. And that the, the nature of the very thing they were trying to study seems to undercut the criteria that they would need in order to um, 
to argue that the 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 physics in the lab is the same as the physics in the in the astrophysical system. And so it just happens to be that I kind of stumbled on um, this little bit of a hole in the particular argument that these guys were making. And so for me, this was a kind of this project was a lesson in like how doing a kind of deep dive case with these questions in mind, with these larger questions in mind about the relationship between observation and experiment and about, you know, um, external validity and, uh, you know, approaching a case with those big questions in mind, but really getting into the weeds could actually tell you something interesting about the, you know, the um, challenges the opportunities, the limitations, and the successes of this kind of research. Um, so you could actually learn something about what, what's what's happened. So I actually wrote to these people to try, try, and, to try and see if I, you know, see if I had gotten it right and see if I was onto something, but haven't heard back from them. So it's hard. I mean, this is this is why, you know, the kind of connection that Vera has with Kevin is really nice because like we do need to have these conversations uh, across disciplinary boundaries. But um, if you don't already know people um, working on particular experiments and it, it can be hard to um, make those connections. Um, and so in other work, I've been really grateful that I can still draw on, for example, like relationships that I have from working in physics myself or, um, you know, uh, friends who are still in physics. And because sometimes you, you, you want to like sanity check on what, where your philosophy went with this stuff. And if it could be any, of any use to people, right? I mean, I've told them that I think there's a kind of problem with their reasoning and, you know, maybe they want to um, change the interpretation of what they what they put. So anyway, mm -hmm. yeah. And to also find me, uh, just help me. I mean, I think that what Nora has suggested said it really kind of shows so the kind of interaction that philosophy and astrophysics has. So philosopher uh, hacking comes here with this big idea of what realism should be and about idea of ma what manipulation should be, right? And so according to this very high standards, astrophysics can't be a scientific discipline. And here maybe the astrophysicist inside Nora or, you know, the physicist inside Nora who studied the physics before mm -hmm. comes and say, no, no, I know that there is a laboratory astrophysics. But mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, the philosopher inside Nora says, yeah, but what kind of reasoning is it? You know, like <laughs> similarity arguments, do they really work? And so you see this very nice interaction. <laughs> yeah. I'm always <clears throat> hammering in on the show and I must sound like a broken record that philosophy is at its best when it's interacting very closely with disciplines outside of philosophy. And this is the, the perfect example of that. But uh, getting back to a, a very important classical well i don't know if classical is the right word but philosophical idea the three of you write in your introduction <clears throat> that astrophysical models are constrained by what quine simply referred to as the tribunal of experience i'm not sure if you were endorsing this or not but can you explain to me what quine meant by the tribunal of experience and why astrophysical models may or may not be constrained by it? <laughs> um, I mean, well, okay. So that quote comes from um, a part of Quine where he's saying that, you know, the uh, science faces the tribunal experience as a corporate body, like as a whole, right? So he's making this point about, um, 
you know, holism and the, the problems of underdetermination. And, um, but I think, you know, that line, I think Siska wrote that part of the introduction, but I've used that line elsewhere too. Um, I, I think this idea, okay, so, you know, here, here's a kind of very basic picture of what's going on in science, right? Like Please. we have, yeah, we have, we have, um, you know, some hypotheses and some possible theories about the way things might work. And we want to know, you know, whether or not they're borne out and we want to know how the world actually works and not just speculate about it. So how are we going to do this? we got to do empirical science. What does empirical science mean? Well, we somehow have to get like, I don't know, um, the data or experience or, you know, whatever you want to call it to feedback on, to constrain our theorizing. So we have to somehow get the world in touch with our ideas, right? And I think, you know, a big part of my work um, outside of this volume in more general philosophy of science has been to try and investigate what the heck do we mean by experience or what is it exactly that is supposed to push back on our scientific theorizing and you might think you know in a kind of old school empiricist way you might think well it's like our observations like literally you know our you know sense perceptions <laughs> what we see with our eyes or something um but i've found that i think you know that story doesn't get us very far when we're trying to think about you know, the way a lot of science actually functions in practice. So if you take the sort of approach that we've been talking about um, already, where we're interested in like how scientists actually work, um, a lot, like a lot of, you know, a lot of science these days is not done with anyone's eyeballs. <laughs> and so there's, there, we might need a different view about, you know, what, what it, what the empirical is, what it is that's um, pushing back on our theorizing. So, so anyway, I mean, I think, I can't remember the context of um, that quote in the introduction, but I think, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, we just want to say that, you know, there's um, certainly a branch of astrophysics that is an empirical science in the sense that um, it's not just speculative, um, it's not just theorizing, but what people are actually trying to do is to, is to, you know, constrain and weed out and make epistemic progress um, with respect to these theories to see which ones are um, consistent with the empirical evidence, how are we going to cash that out? Um, which in this case is going to be, you know, stuff like, uh, you know, galaxy surveys and the gravitational lensing stuff and blah, 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 right? Um, yeah, I mean, let's see. I feel like there's one more thing I want to say about this. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll leave it there. I guess, so, yeah, I think uh, Nora's explanation is, is really spot on. I guess maybe on the very last point, um, uh, the constraints on astrophysical modeling aren't are obviously the ones that come from galaxy surveys and stellar observations and gravitational lensing and the lot, but it actually goes further than that, right? Like to some extent, these laboratory, I mean, um, Nora mentions a case where like the particular kind of property, like it sort of failed, but but in general, right, like uh, uh, our uh, terrestrial experiments and like the way that our, our that like uh, evidence from terrestrial experiments uh, uh, supports the theories of physics that are then extrapolated to uh, the astrophysical context. They also constrain our astrophysical modeling, right? You can't just like come up with nuclear reactions that are considered impossible by our current best theories of nuclear physics, for instance, right? So um, yeah, I think that's sort of like the, the further sort of tribunal 
that or like yeah. for the part sure. of the tribunal that's important to sort of point out. Yeah. I guess the other thing I wanted to say was that um, there's this kind of interesting debate, I think, arising um, more generally within the philosophy of simulation, um, but certainly within the philosophy of astrophysics that deals with simulation, and there's quite a bit of it around, um, you know, what the epistemic role of simulation in this in this discipline of astrophysics really is. So um, I think, you know, the work of Melissa Jackard is really, really interesting on this issue and, and people should read her 2020 paper and read her, you know, her other work on this. But um, I think, you know, one question is like, can, can the results of simulate? Yeah, what, how, how do we want to think about the way the results of simulations are functioning? One kind of natural way to think about them is that they're the way that we make predictions in astrophysics, right? Like you can't do these computations um, mostly for the most part, you know, by hand. So you need to, to run these really fancy simulations. And that's how you're going to like turn the crank on your theory in order to generate predictions that can then be compared with the, the empirical evidence, right? Um, but there's a temptation to use the results of simulations as a kind of evidence themselves. And I think um, my feeling is that this, this is a sort of question, an open question and a point of debate within the philosophy of astrophysics mm. um, community about uh, what would that mean and to what extent would it be kosher? And is this the same kind of evidence or, you yeah. know, as the observational stuff or like what, how exactly should we think about the role of um, simulation outputs in the epistemology of astrophysics? Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to come back to the simulations in a bit. Uh, but Nora, you spoke a bit about data and experiment earlier uh, when we were talking about your paper on laboratory astrophysics, but I'd love to talk about the, fit between data and theory. And I wonder if this might be in Siska's department, just because she's mentioned uh, the gravitational waves a number of times. But I take it that Jamie Elder's paper in the volume, uh, Theory Testing and Gravitational Wave Astrophysics, deals with the interplay between uh, data and theory. And maybe, uh, maybe this isn't Siska's department. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's particularly my department, but in but in general, I think Jamie has done a lot of really interesting work about um, the interplay between like theory and observation in LIGO and in, in gravitational wave detections. Uh, in in fact, um, like one of the very first presentations I saw by Jamie was at the conference that Nora and I organized in Pittsburgh way back in I don't know twenty seventeen or something like. While ago, and and it was exactly about this issue, um, which he has then like further developed a lot, um, and it's about this kind of issue about how in um, gravitational wave detections, um, in order to detect the signal of the gravitational wave, you need a gravitational wave form, and so she sort of like tries to uh, understand, and this gravitational wave form is generated based on. Uh, theory, right? And and exactly the theory that maybe you want to test. It it seems at face value, as he sort of she sort of she sort of tries to investigate what this um, like uh, in some of her work tries to investigate like what this um, uh, whether or not this leads to a 
potentially harmful circularity or not, and how that circularity exactly can be um, broken. Yeah, and it's super interesting. <laughs> and then she's been working um, more recently in collaboration with Julius, right, on asking these same sort of questions about the um, about the black hole imaging research, right? And I think it's fascinating to watch this sort of research program develop because, yeah, you know, you see the very theory um, that is supposed to be tested by these observations, by this empirical evidence being used in the in the construction <laughs> of mm. the evidence, right? Um, and as Cisco was saying, this prima facie looks like circularity and the epistemic question is, is it vicious? And um, what's cool is that Jamie comes out um, you know, like optimistic in some cases and not quite so optimistic in other cases. And so it's really, um, I think she is really doing this great kind of practice-oriented philosophy of science where um, where it might turn out that there are some problems sometimes and philosophers mm -hmm. are in a position to uh, like offer critique and corrective in a, in a, in a hopefully like constructive way mm -hmm. <laughs> by looking at some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. but, but sometimes it works out really well and you can you know, everything looks great and it looks like you can tell a story about how, why the success is so successful, but mm -hmm. there's also this other side of it too, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. yeah. The Julius Nora mentioned is Julius Dobrzewski, who uh, is now also, I think, at the Black Hole Initiative and who also has a co-authored contribution in the volume. <laughs> Just plugging it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Vera, you wrote a paper that I wonder if it touches on any of any adjacent topics in this sort of nexus on uh, observation and uh well probably not experiment but the paper i have in mind is umuamua and meta empirical confirmation and i think for most listeners the first question is what was that word that he said at the beginning uh, so i guess one what is Umuamua. Uh, if my people don't remember five or six years ago, that was a big topic. And then what exactly is meta-empirical confirmation? <laughs> yeah, Sally Siska has been working on meta-empirical confirmation, so <laughs> she can also add things on that. But yeah, so I think that uh, this paper uh, might show some aspects about uh, the interplay between maybe like data, how to interpret data and uh, how they fit with the other our hypothesis and how to decide whether we have different hypotheses. Um, uh, I mean, of course, there might be a case of very serious underdetermination. Sometimes we don't even know whether all hypotheses are feasible or viable, viable, like in this case. So basically, in 2017, I think on the 7th of October, Mm -hmm. uh, ba ba basically, uh, we detected this uh, inter interstellar interloper in our solar system, and we didn't know what it is. Um, and then, so this object remains unclassified because it has very strange features. So actually, it has a kind of non-gravitational axis acceleration, which uh, makes it like look like a comet that kind of accelerate. But we don't detect any cometary activity. Um, so maybe it's an asteroid, but how can an asteroid accelerate in this way, right? Uh, so maybe it's like a nitro nitrogen. Uh, 
Oh, exactly. Very spooky. <laughs> maybe it's like a hydrogen ice uh, com has hi hydrogen ice composition, maybe nitrogen ice composition and etc. And so there, uh, here it's the kind of um, um, hypothesis which looked very crazy and the physics community, community which was by uh, Loeb, Harvard scientist, a Harvard astrophysicist that said, well, look, we can actually explain the kind of acceleration that Oumuamua had uh, by um, um, thinking that actually it's an artificial object. How is it an artificial object? It comes from outside our uh, solar system. And so then uh, the hypothesis that actually this object is artificial and constructed by an alien civilization. Okay? It seems like a big And jump. so then... Uh, Exactly. It was a really big jump. And I think that the astrophysics community was really um, kind of feeling uncomfortable with this big jump and saying, well, you do not have any proof, any data that such an alien uh, civilization <laughs> exists. And so this hypothesis is just not scientific. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. I think that that was also a kind of bold, a big jump, maybe not really justified. Mm -hmm. uh, so then, uh, uh, in uh, like uh, Kevin Hank, who was the director of the Center for Science and Habitability, had I was bold enough to invite uh, um, Loeb to kind of give a talk. Even though at that time he was considered a kind of like controversial figure, maybe by some of the astrophysics community, and um, and so well, then uh, I, uh, if you know um, Loeb, actually you can see that he's a very hardcore empiricist. Okay, so then his point was uh, saying like, oh we can launch uh, like a mission to chase uh, Oumuamua. Uh, and so there is this very big project called uh, the Lira project that really aims to chase uh, Oumuamua. Uh, but then of course the community uh, might think, well, look, do we really have enough financial resources, but also intellectual resources to engage with this uh, huge project? Your hypothesis is just non-scientific, so we will not chase it. And so my contribution was more to like was to answer the question: How do you actually judge whether a hypothesis is feasible or not? And in this case, the meta-empirical confirmation framework really helps us. So it was developed by Richard David. Um, uh, actually in the context of string theory. So a kind of very, if I may say, kind of speculative kind of theory, right? Um, maybe not that speculative for many uh, physicists, but still. But in this case, I think it could uh, work as well. So in a very kind of emp empirical, empiricist framework, if you want, where, you know, we need more data to decide whether this crazy hypothesis can be confirmed or not. But first, we need to check the viability or feasibility of this hypothesis, which means that do we have such a high confidence 
in this hypothesis to think that actually will be empirically adequate or it will even be true, like if you really want to talk about truth. And so, I mean, here you can think, okay, well, there is maybe some part of the community that is biased against alien civilization, some part of the community that maybe is also biased towards the possible existence of alien civilization. And here it comes to this method, the meta-empirical method, that basically aims to collect data, not uh, not data that are strictly speaking within the domain of the hypothesis that we want to check whether it's feasible or not, but supports the kind of meta-empirical hypothesis that there are not many theories that are empirically adequate as that kind of hypothesis that we want to investigate. And so these are kind of data that are meta-empirical, so for instance, the fact that we have searched for a very long time uh, for like a new hypotheses that are as empirically adequate as the one we want to check, but we haven't found any, or maybe the fact that actually, you know, this hypothesis was created to, to solve one problem uh, about our data, but now can solve lots of problems of uh, our data and so can explain unexpected uh, kind of connections between our data. Or maybe that actually we have found in the past a similar hypothesis that were so successful. And, uh, you know, so this can give us a kind of like confidence that maybe also this time this kind of hypothesis was or will be like feasible. Um, so yeah, also like in this case, uh, you can see, so, Basically, before maybe like going back to like uh, when Nora was talking about different you know models that we have, and yet yeah, we have the tribunal of experience that has to judge which one. Uh, then I mean in uh, in uh, astrophysics you have many different maybe incompatible models, and you also have many different compatible hypotheses, so to say. And sometimes we like our tribunal uh, of experience is not enough uh, mm -hmm. to actually select the best one or the true one or the most uh, you know successful one. And so you need to go a step back and say, well, first let's check like, whether maybe this model that is crazy is really like feasible and uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so gonna... that might be really like, yeah, the connection, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say that that strikes me as um, exactly what is going on in the paper by uh, Niels Martins and Martin King on uh, dark matter, and, but may maybe we'll get to that eventually. Oh, I just wanted to mention that I think um, the case that Vera describes and, and the paper that she wrote, um, if you then compare it with like the paper that Nora was describing earlier, um, or like some of the papers that we have in the volume and, and the papers we were talking about, about like gravitational wave detection, it just shows the breadth of topics that there's available in astrophysics, Absolutely. right? Like it's about like the scales of things, but also the philosophical topics that might like be, um, for which it might be interesting to look at astrophysical practice. And so, uh, yeah, I think this is sort of like the perfect illustration as to why it's like, really good i think that we managed to get this anthology together and to like put it out there and to show oh, the philosophy of science like 
this is a totally. this is a field that deserves your attention you know speaking of large scales and other aspects or examples of astrophysics that that will touch on some of these same issues we've been discussing. So there's a paper in the volume by Lydia Patton on uh, stellar population synthesis. And I have an anecdote about stellar population synthesis. I actually, I shared it on this story when I was talking uh, to Kevin, but I'll repeat it. So when I was an undergrad, I thought I was going to be an astrophysicist for a while. So in one of my astrophysics classes, well, I I joined like the astrophysics club, which was just graduate students. And I showed up to the first meeting and the whole time they just talked about models for uh, stellar population synthesis in, well, in forming galaxies. And I was just bored out of my mind by it and (laughs) and decided not to be an astrophysicist <laughs> uh, right then. But I I would love to hear about the philosophical side of this without having to spend uh, years on the, the theory part myself. Yeah, so I think that Lydia was really still talking about the interconnection between a theory and uh, and uh, like uh, uh, data and the theory or lateness of data like she was kind of arguing that you can measure a physical variable only if you have a theory behind it um and uh, yeah I, I think it was a really uh, nice uh, uh, paper that was also connected to um like elders paper about the uh, theory lateness uh, of the data. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if anyone wants to add something about, about it. I think it's another sort of like uh, paper, like uh, I think it's another kind of example where it's like, you know, a philosopher is trying to sort of carve out what potential topics might be interested. Like, I don't think there's many philosophers who have looked at stellar population synthesis models so far. Uh, mm-hmm. And in fact, one philosopher who had a chance quickly switched fields, as, as we just recently <laughs> learned. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, maybe maybe reading that paper will like change your mind again and make you think like, oh, yeah, no, yeah. stellar population synthesis models. That's where it's at, you know? Yeah, yeah, maybe. Okay, well, Nora, you mentioned uh, simulations earlier, and as I looked at this uh, portion of uh, the introduction to the volume, I noticed a major parallel to the philosophy of mathematics, particularly with regard to like com- computer-assisted proofs mm-hmm. uh, that might be too long or complex for a human to perform or even observe. And what, I guess, in the case of, well, maybe we should talk about just what you have in mind or what astrophysical simulations and models are, but I guess the questions that connect to mathematics are what gives us the sort of the epistemic security to accept or trust such proofs, particularly if our goal isn't just maybe to confirm something, but to understand something. Mm -hmm. And naturally, the, the parallel that I see with computational astrophysics that rely not on theoretical models, but computer simulations is, I mean, how do philosophers of astrophysics establish, or astrophysicists themselves establish the reliability of these models that they're using? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, so 
I mean, I guess maybe one place to start is just that it seems to me that there are lots of um, uses for simulations and simulations in astrophysics in particular that are relatively uncontroversial. So, you know, if you want to um, use your simulation to generate like how possibly worlds based on the model that you're working with, that seems like to me a totally unproblematic and kosher way to use simulations. Um, but, and, and I think, you know, maybe even for a, a kind of, um, you know, understanding, like, so Melissa Jackert's example um, about um, ring galaxies is really nice because she, she makes this point that... What's a ring galaxy for those of us that... Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what it, <laughs> what it sounds like. It's a weirdly shaped galaxy that looks like a smoke ring instead of, like, having a normal body like a galaxy. And... Um, you know, a question is like, what, how the heck do these things form, right? Like how, what made it such that it's a ring rather than a disc or whatever, um, or a spiral and, um, or a blob, <laughs> the other ways that galaxies, I mean, these things are pretty weird. And so, um, you know, one challenge that Melissa talks about is the fact that, um, we don't, um, in this type of astrophysics, we don't see the processes the relevant physical pro processes play out in real time. The processes uh, take too long. We're talking about like, you know, I mean, like right now our galaxy is moving very <laughs> slowly towards Andromeda and eventually we're gonna collide and there'll be some kind of cataclysm or whatever, but the, the time scales involved in galaxy collisions are, are just enormous um, beyond, um, beyond our possible like empirical reach. And so you can't, you can't like watch the movie, you know, unfold for you in order to investigate these causal processes. And so Melissa characterizes this as a problem of like just having snapshots. And, um, you know, this, you know, this isn't the case for all astrophysical processes, right? I mean, the, um, the accretion disk around black holes, I think are a really nice example um, to the contrary, right, where you can make the movie and see some of these processes play out in real time, which is really cool. Um, but for, for like the galaxy formation stuff, we just don't have access to the relevant time scale. And so Melissa argues that simulations become really important for our understanding of like how these, um, uh, you know, how these physical processes play out so that we can see, you know, we can run the simulation in various ways and um, see what conditions are conducive to uh, getting these ring galaxies and, um, you know, what things are necessary and, right, you can, you can, you know, run all these different uh, virtual experiments and try and understand what the, what the relevant processes could be. Um, and I think, like, where this gets controversial, at least for me, is that, you know, okay, what do we want to say about what just happened there? Do we want to say that we learned about how ring galaxies actually form? Um, I'm not so sure. I mean, I think I'm very comfortable saying like we learned a bunch of how possibly stories, right? Based on the underlying models. But um, um, I think, I mean, like, <laughs> I think it's when we're trying to learn about nature, like the input from nature, the tribunal of experience is an absolutely necessary and crucial part of this story, mm -hmm. right? So as soon as that drops out, we're missing the we're missing the crucial special ingredient, yeah. right? Um, now the situation gets like weird and complicated with simulations because 
especially in astrophysics and, you know, and this is true in climate science and, and in other simulations as well. Um, they're not like purely, they're not purely theoretical. They're, you know, they've got empirical stuff fed in, and this goes to your question about, you know, how these things get, um, validated or what the justification is supposed to be for using them in the first place. Right. Um, there's, um, you know, empirical evidence interwoven and hybridized and fed into simulations. And so um, for me, I think that's a really kind of fruitful area of further inquiry that people could get into here is like, um, you know, what do we want to say about, um, and I think this is also going on in the, um, in the black hole imaging results too, right? We were talking about this a little bit earlier where like, the theory, the theory is integrated into the very construction of the um, the thing that's supposed to be the empirical result. You can kind of tell a similar story about simulations in the sense that, like, the empirical stuff is being fed into the thing that is supposed to be the prediction, or you know. So, so what do we want to say about these hybrid cases where we have, you know, theory and data intermixed, and are there some cases where um, we uh, you know, is it possible that you could get enough empirical stuff into a simulation such that its output output could could serve as the tribunal of experience? Or is, you know, are, and are there ways, I mean, it's just like, it's kind of messy because these things get hybridized in lots of different ways. And so I think you really do just kind of have to like pick some cases and track through how is the stuff being combined and what is it being used for? Um, what are people trying to use it for um, and see if it makes any sense. But... Can I say something about this validation of, of simulations in astrophysics? Um, I think, uh, so we have a whole sort of part of the anthology that is about like simulations and um, how to validate simulations and how to, like the epistemology of computer simulations. Um, one paper that uh, I also found incredibly sort of illuminating to, to read um, and sort of spotlighted something that I hadn't thought about before is um, a paper by Chris Mink and Sarah Gallagher. Yeah, yeah. And it's this collaboration. It's, by the way, again, a collaboration between a philosopher and an astrophysicist. Uh, and uh, their paper is about um, what they call the problem of unsimulated alternatives. Right, right. And so um, they describe this kind of issue um, in using simulations to reconstruct sort of like potential uh, evolutionary histories. I think uh, of, of quasars. Particular, of quasars, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so um, uh, one thing that they sort of point out is that, like, you know, we may have some successful simulations of quasars, but in fact, if you look at the whole possibility space of potential model scenarios for how it, uh, of how quasars evolve, um, there's a whole swath of that possibility space that we actually don't know what the model would predict because we don't have the resources to simulate it. Um, and uh, uh, so, so uh, I think that that's kind of a really interesting thing to to keep in mind about the simulations, and where also like looking at scientific practice is really important, like. You can tell an astrophysicist like, oh, you should simulate all possible scenarios, but the right. astrophysicist might just tell you, but I can't, like, I literally cannot do this task, right? And right. I think that's sort of a, a, a an interesting uh, point that, that that paper really highlights and that further complicates this whole idea of like, what are we using simulations for and, and 
to what extent, like how far does their epistemic warrant extend, basically? Yeah, and it again raises this question or points to the pragmatic encroach into the into scientific practice. So with uh, Vera's paper on Oumuamua, we can't test Loeb's uh, <laughs> hypothesis because we just don't have the resources to to determine whether or not, the, or it's just not even scientifically feasible to determine whether or not it's some sort of alien spacecraft. And in, in this case, we lack the resources or the tools to uh, test all of these plausible scenarios. Mm -hmm. And we sort of think of science as this, uh, or at least, again, the, the uninitiated think of science as this perfect, rational, objective enterprise that isn't really, isn't subject to certain limitations, but it's really very much a uh, human-centered uh, activity mm -hmm. that depends on what we're uh, actually able to do. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah, and no. I mean, it's, uh, it's hard. It's yeah. it's like it's not. I just want to. It's not to say the astrophysicists are very well aware of this, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, and they're very careful about the kinds of conclusions that they draw and uh, and 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 how far they might want to go in, in in what they claim and stuff. I think it's like an interesting lesson for philosophers to then also listen to how careful they are and try to understand why they're so careful. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, actually, if I may add something, one topic that we kind of left as like a suggestion for future research is uh, exoplanetary science, and in particular, like a model in the atmosphere of exoplanet science. Yeah. Of I exoplanets. With Kevin about that a lot. Uh, yeah, exactly. So as you can see, maybe, you know, we have just a very noisy uh, data like our spectrum. And then we have all this range of like uh, this space of possible models that could explain that spectrum. And uh, and then maybe astrophysicists just concentrate on a particular portion of that space. So just, you know, inquiring whether like which of these models and they are incompatible, but, you know, like let's focus on this. And maybe, you know, it could be that the solution is outside this portion of space. But then you can also see like what is really interesting is that sometimes it's really like Astrophysicists are very happy to have like very different models, like incompatible, and they know that it's just a heuristic. But sometimes they get very strong about like one model, and they say, "No, no, this is the true one." And then you know maybe there are like um, tensions with in the community within the community. And I have one last question about modeling and. I think this relates to uh, hacking and well, my question relates to hacking and what I recall was referred to as entity realism, but I've talked a lot about fictional objects on the podcast, mainly in terms of uh, metaphysics and then the philosophy of mathematics, but not, not yet astrophysics naturally. And I see that they're quite relevant here, particularly with uh, or surrounding uh, a, an area of astrophysics that I've never heard of called asteroseismology. And so what is asteroseismology and where does this uh, question of fictions uh, fit in? 
Yeah, so uh, basically it's the discipline that studies oscillations of stars. And basically, so Swartz, Mauricio Swartz, has this very interesting metaphysical views about certain properties or entities that come in our scientific models that we do know that they do not present a reality, that they are not there, but that they allow very efficient inferences. So there are kind of expedients that like features in our models that then really make us a very cool scientist that can really um, have empirically adequate models so that uh, are very successful. And uh, uh, this really uh, sparks lots of issues about like the metaphysics of fictional entities um, in in models, and uh, also about like the epistemic uh, justifications so that our uh, that basically our conclusions based on these models have. So what 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 is the kind of epistemic authority of uh, these conclusions since they are based on models that are not really like representing uh, the target phenomenon. Um, and uh, and so I mean, of course, like when we talk about stars, we can't really know what's uh, inside a star. We can't really send probes to look into, right? So basically, our uh, models are probably highly speculative. Um, and uh, also because of like computational problems or even theoretical problems, we can't really um, have um, um, a kind of um, clear representation of like the target phenomenon. Um, and, uh, and so here, you know, the creativity maybe if you want to talk about creativity of uh, uh, astrophysicists come. Uh, and and so yes, it's very interesting. I think to see how you were mentioning before the philosophy of a fictional entities that come here to play. So it's like a fictional discourse to talk about these entities. It's a kind of fictional discourse to talk about like what this model say about the world, right? Uh, so we it's but. Uh, but yet, can we actually say that what they say about the world is true? Or do we have to just remain agnostic and say, well, they they don't say what is true, or they don't say what is false? Or maybe we can say, no, we know that what they describe is false because it doesn't exist. Um, and it's I think it really interesting to see how this philosophy of fictionalism that uh, first so maybe was just in aesthetics, uh, then uh, really uh, came, uh, um, uh, I mean, was applied to philosophy of mathematics, like Hartree Field, and now even for, and then for models like Frigg, um, as an example, and now uh, Swartz really takes uh, this view and applies it to uh, philosophy of astrophysics. Hmm. And in the paper in the volume, he um, kind of revisits some claims that he made uh, in, an, in an earlier work on this issue um, in light of recent research in astroseismology, where um, it now looks like we can start to get evidence that bears on 
um, some of these assumptions, modeling assumptions made about stars, like for example, that they're perfectly spherically symmetric or something like that. And so, um, you know, with this mm -hmm. advancing research in astroseismology, Suarez thinks that we might start to look at some of these claims a little bit differently as more, um, more like approximations, right? To, you know, that are not quite right, but um, could be corrected and that our models could be adjusted rather than as fictions proper. So um, yeah, there's a nice sort of way in which the, you know, advancing scientific research then has fed back on what we want to say philosophically about these models. Mm -hmm. And so now we, we've been speaking a lot about, I think, the limitations of the astrophysicist, astrophysicist epistemically and that of their tools, but less about uh, the objects themselves. And I mean, we, we have talked about uh, black holes we in passing a bit, but so what special problems do objects like say black holes that literally cannot be directly observed, at least in an optical sense, because they swallow all light pose for the astrophysicist in, I mean, this epistemological sense. It's like you might think that like the really pessimistic view is that astrophysicists are just totally screwed because you can't experiment, you can't see some of these things. So like what are you yeah. supposed to do, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, one of the, I think one of the most fascinating um, pockets of philosophy of astrophysics that is just really um, cooking away right now that everybody should be following and, and reading is um, this stuff on the role of analog simulations for studying black holes. Um, there's this really cool debate that's happening within this uh, field about what to make of these experiments. So you have, you know, again, to, here's a sort of hack to try and <laughs> um, figure out, you know, what's going on with black holes. Um, you know, maybe we can, uh, uh, construct physical systems, tabletop or laboratory size physical systems that um, share the same physics, but uh, as black holes and, but aren't, aren't themselves like, um, you know, these astrophysical black holes. So uh, Bill Unruh has this famous paper where he um, makes the case for acoustic black hole, like an acoustic analog of black holes, um, that you could have something called a dumb hole that um, displays the very same physics, but uh, as an astrophysical black hole, but is something that um, has an acoustic horizon instead of like the, as the event horizon. And so you can think about, um, so, so, you know, experimentalists since then have unruh left that paper as sort of like, oh, here's a, here's a nice thought I had in this very short paper. Um, and I wonder if people will actually make these experiments, who knows, you know, and then, and then the experimentalists did take it up. And since then there's been this whole, um, proliferation of different types of analog black hole experiments. So you've got um, people doing like water-based experiments. Um, hmm. You've got, you know, optical experiments that are, you know, tracking these same, same sorts of physics and same sort of um, behaviors. And uh, so this approach to trying to get at 
um, black holes in this kind of indirect way has generated like a bunch, as you can imagine, a bunch of interesting philosophical questions about, it's in the same sort of camp of like external validity stuff. Like how is the reasoning supposed to go to get us from the analog cases to the astrophysical cases? Um, and there's a really, really lovely paper by Alex in this volume where um, he argues that um, you know, a, a lot of the astrophysicists and cosmologists have been sort of skeptical of the analog black hole experiments, um, but at the same time have been um, really optimistic about um, black hole thermodynamics, like treating black holes as thermodynamic systems. But in order to get, he, he argues that these two fields are actually really intertwined in a way that is going to make the optimists about black hole thermodynamics unhappy. <laughs> so if the, you know, the argument for black hole thermodynamics rests on um, there being astrophysical Hawking radiation um, and the evidence that we, the empirical evidence that we have for the existence of Hawking, astrophysical Hawking radiation comes through this indirect route of doing the tabletop analog gravity experiments, um, then it looks like in order to have your black hole thermodynamics, you're gonna need to like adopt or be, be a little more friendly to the tabletop stuff, but people are unwilling to do that. So, and he runs through a bunch of different possibilities of how to get around this sort of tangle and rejects them and sort of leaves us with this puzzle about like how these things are interconnected. But anyway, I mean, that just, just as an example of like some of the really cool literature that's going on right now, like Grace Field is doing excellent stuff on this, um, on the, uh, on the um, black hole research and this, in these sorts of veins and, um, I just think like that's like a super fascinating area that's happening right now that is trying to deal with some of these questions about like how do we how do we investigate these entities that are so exotic? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the last question I, I have about material that was covered directly in the book, and I hinted that I was curious about this earlier, was that paper by Niels Martin and Martin King, just be, one because dark matter is uh, endlessly fascinating for the layperson like myself. But if I understood correctly, the issue is that one can't, uh, I don't know, fix is the right word, but fix a theory, yeah, fix or remediate a theory that might be faulty just by looking at the data. You can't just like patch up the theory from. Uh, scrutinizing the data endlessly. Is that on the right track as regards to this paper and dark matter? Looks like Cisco is ready. I to... think it's, I th yeah, I think it's slightly different. By the way, okay. it's uh, as somebody who works on philosophy of dark matter, it's not just for the lay person that it's endlessly fascinating. It's <laughs> in general, yeah, yeah. endlessly yeah, yeah, yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But um, I think the paper between uh, that uh, that Martins and King wrote is more about this sort of like um, debate that has been very present. I, th I think it's not so present necessarily in the scientific literature, but it's very present in the philosophical literature. If you look at philosophy of dark matter, um, uh, where um, there's this um, debate going on between um, uh, about like 
dark matter as part of the lambda CDM concordance model of cosmology on the one hand, and then modified Newtonian dynamics or MOND as an alternative on galactic scales. Um, and what's kind of interesting, uh, or like what they point out about this sort of um, debate that's going on is that uh, just like looking at the debate in the philosophical literature, um, you can't really uh, um, understand the disagreement between uh, the two sort of champs, I guess, um, in terms of uh, just pure under like sort of, um, uh, you can't really understand the disagreement un unless you look at um, the explanatory uh, uh, virtues that they mm -hmm. sort of the different explanatory virtues that they think um, the two sort of hypotheses or, or so um, uh, exemplify. And so they try to sort of explicate what the different explanatory virtues are that are exhibited in the debate and whether or not um, the like the defenders of each side actually satisfy the virtues that they um, purport to adhere to uh, or, or not. So I think I think that's sort of like um, where that paper goes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. But uh, Nora and Vera, please correct me if you think that that's uh, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's that's perfect. <laughs> you cite a paper of Wesley Sammons, I think, in the introduction, uh, in which he distinguishes between pseudo processes and causal processes. And again, this is uh, somewhere where you might have to totally correct me because I have a feeling that I read this paper many years ago, but there might have been a there's a thought experiment. I think it was in a, a salmon paper that really stuck out at me. And what I am imagining this thought experiment looking something like is we imagine this sort of stadium on a massive like stellar galactic scale and at the center of it you have this intergalactic spotlight and it's spinning around like a lighthouse and then on these the walls sort of of the stadium you see the the spotlight circle sort of circling around and around and because of this the immense scale of the thing this spotlight, the beam, the circle that we see on the wall is moving faster than the speed of light. It, or at least it appears to be moving faster than the speed of light. Uh, and maybe this is the pseudo process because what's actually happening is each uh, instance, each instant of the light, it's actually, I mean, it's distinct photons coming from this uh, central apparatus and it's really just an illusion that something is moving around the the walls at all now is that is that in this paper that you cited and if okay i see nora nodding so that's that i think that's good and then what then is the the actual uh rigorous well maybe you don't have to do it rigorously but the distinction between a causal process and a pseudo causal or a pseudo process and why is this relevant in particular besides the large scale to the philosophy of astrophysics i mean i could take a stab at it but then siska um fix fix whatever i say <laughs> i don't know if i can <laughs> um and i haven't read this this uh piece 
carefully recently, but it, I do want to say it was just like such a lovely find because, okay. So I think um, Salmon talks about this very process that you're describing with the spotlight and the stadium okay, in other places too, but the, the, uh, the place, the reason it comes up in this particular um, piece that we said in the introduction is that um, he's, he's like picking a little bone with the astrophysicists who routinely make arguments kind of um, uh, physical impossibility arguments about the size of astrophysical objects based on a kind of reasoning which um, uh, Salmon thinks um, fails for reasons that are shown by this sort of thought experiment about the um, stadium and the light. So, um, you know, yeah, f physicists will make an argument that, you know, this object couldn't possibly be this big because the, you know, the right sort of causal processes couldn't, you know, yeah, couldn't connect it at that scale. And so we're for, the therefore, for theoretical reasons, we're going to put this kind of cap on the scale of this object. And um, if I'm remember remembering correctly, Salmon, you know, suggests that like, um, these arguments don't always go through. And he actually tries to, he writes a little, I think he writes a little paper and then, and writes to some other physicists and just like tries to make his point several times. And they're like, yeah, yeah, no, no, that's, you know, and they just kind of keep going on using the reasoning that they've been using all along, which he thinks is problematic. And so this piece that we cited is Salmon, like um, sort of complaining and documenting like his attempts to try and make this argument to the physicists that they're this kind of routine um, reasoning that they're using about physical impossibility is it doesn't go through. Um, so, and I think like the, the, yeah, the difference between a pseudo process and, you know, a real causal process has to do with this idea of making marks, right? Is this good? Is this, do you remember how this goes? I, I don't know. I think it's mm -hmm. same for me. It's been a while since I've read it. So I don't, I, yeah, I, I'm going to defer to you. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think the thought is something like the, you know, the light moving around the outside of the stadium mm -hmm. um, couldn't be used to um, transmit, um, like that you couldn't transmit a message faster than the speed of light with that because you can record marks in the right sort of way. And if we're, if we're, even though there are things that will travel faster than the speed of light in this sense, um, they're not gonna count as genuine causal processes because they're not the sort of things that could transmit marks. I don't know, something like that. Okay, cool. And then you know, the philosophy of astrophysics has the potential, as I think uh, Vera might have mentioned, uh, to really cover the gamut of philosophical topics and considerations. Like I think you mentioned aesthetics, uh, Vera. But I mean, there are all sorts of aesthetic considerations. I mean, experiment design, uh, what uh, theory choice, what determines our interests in astrophysical problems. But then I imagine that there are connections to uh, philosophy of time. There's metaphysics, there's ethics, there's concerns uh, about, I mean, ancient philosophy. So there are, there are all sorts of directions in which to go. I was particularly curious, though, about whether or not there are any interesting ways in which the philosophy of astrophysics intersects with the philosophy of time. Because while I suppose when, when, whenever we're making any sort of 
visual or optical observation, we're recording past phenomena. But this is drastically magnified in the case of astrophysics when the light uh, takes, I mean, millions and millions and millions of billions of years to reach us. So have you looked at astrophysics or the philosophy of astrophysics in this sense at all? I mean, this is this is one of the great things about like astrophysics and cosmology is that is precisely the finite speed of light, right? Because it allows you to um, get observations of earlier of the universe at its earlier stages, right? So you can build up the movie of running the history of the universe back in time because we have, um, yeah, we're not just seeing everything as it is today. Um, I mean, if you take the extreme example. The cosmic microwave background is that relic radiation from when you know the the very first light was able to free stream after plasma cooled enough in the universe to release photons, and so this is like what three hundred thousand years after the Big Bang or whatever. It's like very very early on, and so and, and this is true for you know all these stages of galaxy evolution since then that the light arriving at us now um, gives us like that more or less direct access to what's going on at that time. So this is like a total feature, <laughs> an awesome feature. Of Not a bug. Yeah, yeah, this is great. Um, <laughs> but I think that there has been within the philosophy of cosmology more attention to um, like traditional questions in philosophy of time. So, um, you know, I mean, one question could just be like, about the arrow of time, like, you know, our best, you know, our physical theories seem to be sort of um, time reversal invariant, like you can run physics forward or backwards, physics doesn't really care. Um, but, you know, our experience goes in one direction, there is an arrow of time. And so how did that happen? Um, and I think, you know, uh, folks have been trying to look at you know, could you give a cosmological explanation for why we have the arrow of time? Could this connect up to what we want to say about the thermodynamics of the early universe and um, to get those things to try and play into one another? I don't know. Do you guys have other connections, interesting connections there? Okay. <laughs> and then yeah, maybe black holes will, will revolutionize our concept of time. I don't know. But yeah. 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 That no, might that, be interesting. That's true, too. And then I was also <laughs> wondering whether you'd considered some of the ethical dimensions of the philosophy of astrophysics or whether I mean, maybe you wouldn't really want to consider this uh, the philosophy of astrophysics then. But the sort of questions that I had in mind were whether or not we have moral obligations to to care for extraterrestrial organisms that we might discover mm. or um, whether we're obligated to leave other planets untouched and pristine or to avoid uh, space litter with all of our satellites. I don't know. If, if you think these are concerns that should be categorized as philosophy yeah. of astrophysical... Yeah. Or or what? Yeah, there is a, a there is a whole kind of branch of uh, 
philosophy. I, I'm not sure if it's uh, correct to say philosophy of astrophysics, but actually the name is a space of philosophy, like philosophy of space. Okay. So I think that philosopher Schwartz has been investigating it. Has, he has also written a book on it. And yes, it's a basically the intersection of uh, maybe a little bit like methodological issues, but more like ethical issues and the exploration of space. So for instance, what about like our gar garbage like left in space or, or what about like uh, maybe like, uh, yeah, exactly what you said, like, should we really preserve like the uh, nature of like the moon or maybe other um, uh, like celestial bodies that maybe we will be able to reach? Uh, what if uh, we find uh, alien civilizations? Uh, should we care for them as much as we care for us? And so there is this, and actually it's something that I really care. I'm not, uh, and that, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if you want to add something. I think uh, sort of on the ethics ethics of astrophysics, there's uh, there, there's all of these interesting things that Vera was mentioning. I think there's another branch that Robinson, you, you didn't quite mention, which is about the ethics of where we build scientific experiments, where we build telescopes. Um, oh yeah, no, and... I, that hadn't occurred to me. Yeah, so actually, this is like a quite, uh, there's an interesting and quite ethically problematic uh, history of where telescopes get built. Um, and actually, this is like an ongoing issue. So there's, um, uh, for instance, a lot, a lot of telescopes are built on the Mauna Kea in Hawaii, um, uh, on land that is sacred for uh, indigenous people in Hawaii. And um, there's this huge controversy about these telescopes being built. Like, for instance, there's this proposal for this 30 meter telescope to be built in Hawaii. Um, but this is really in conflict with um, uh, the um, uh, um, the interests of uh, indigenous people in Hawaii. Um, and so there's this huge conflict about this. But but like that's one example. But in fact, this is like a longstanding thing. Some of the crucial observations that were done in the context of the eclipse experiment that was sort of considered um, conclusive evidence for general relativity, right? Or like one of the first main sources of empirical evidence for general relativity were also done in uh, colonized places and where the um, scientists made use of indigenous knowledge to learn where they were supposed to do the observations. But of course, none of the credit goes to any of those um, uh, like to any of the indigenous people who helped with a lot of this. Um, and I just want to mention, we mentioned this in the introduction as well, but there's um, Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, who's a professor of astrophysics, uh, and uh, she works on, on dark matter, I think. Um, she has created this reading list on Medium that's all about like decolonizing science, and it has amazing resources about all of these different cases and sort of the ethical issues that go on in terms of um uh, yeah, like where telescopes are built and who gets to profit from where the telescopes are built, who gets the credit for the observations that are done with these instruments, um, things like that. And she also talks about this in um, her book, popular science book called The Disordered Cosmos, um, which I also really recommend to anyone interested in uh, dark matter and cosmology and astrophysics. Um, and yeah, so, so she has some really, really great um, resources, resources on this. Hmm. Well, speaking of dark matter, there was one last thing that I wanted to 
ask about that I neglected to position properly in the, the course of our discussion. But that is your paper, Siska and Nora. Uh, jump ship, shift gears, or just keep on chugging. Assessing the responses to tensions between theory and evidence in contemporary cosmology. So you wrote this a few years ago, and it's about the quote-unquote small-scale challenges to the concordance model of cosmology. So one, I guess, there are a bunch of questions here. What is the concordance model of cosmology? What are these small-scale challenges? How does it to relate? How does it relate to cold, dark matter? And, and parenthetically, is cold, dark matter something different from dark matter? And then, end parenthesis, why are these challenges philosophically relevant? Nora, you should take this. <laughs> um, I should also say the great title is yes. completely Nora's idea. Like she gets all the credit. <laughs> Very good title. Thank you. And also, I just also want people to note that my greatest, Siska, and I, I don't know, I'll speak for myself. This is my greatest intellectual achievement so far. I, I think, think Siska's too. proud oh, of it. Awesome. Too. I'm so glad I asked about it. No, <laughs> something's particular, which is the fact that you know how like you get asked for these stupid highlights for your papers, for your articles, and it's like a work of these feels like branding or whatever. So um Siska and I decided that we were going to, instead of writing actual highlights, we were going to write a haiku. So um our highlights for this paper are a haiku. Oh, can and you read the I haiku? <laughs> Um, do, let's see, do you have I'll cut it out the search for it, but uh, I'd love to hear the haiku. <laughs> I'm very, very, very pleased with it. I think we want to bet. I think someone, I think like who owes us a beer, Siska, Chip and Sam. There's a group Sam, of philosophers yeah, yeah. in physics who owe us a beer for being able to get yeah. that through um, the publisher. But I know um, the final yeah, line so. of, yeah, I know the final line of the haiku, yeah. but I don't know the rest yeah. of it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll look it up. We should memorize it. We should probably get it tattooed, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, so the concordance model of cosmology. So uh, if you take general relativity, right, and you um, you make some assumptions, you apply it to the whole universe, make some assumptions like the universe is homogeneous and isotropic, and um, have this kind of very simplified um, uh, uh, equation for characterizing the entire universe, you get a, a model of you know, cosmology, it's the way that cosmologists think about it today. And um, it has, that model includes like various components that contribute to the overall energy density of the universe. So these are things that you'd expect, like baryonic matter that we're made out of, um, but uh, also, um, and radiation, right? But also uh, these more exotic elements like dark energy and um, dark matter. And um, initially in dark matter research, there was a question about whether the dark matter was cold in the sense that it's relatively like the particles are relatively still moving or whether it's hot, whether it's closer to radiation in the sense that there's, there's a lot of uh, motion going on. Um, and which of those turns out to be the case has implications for that would show up in structure formation. So you can use the galaxy surveys on large scales to constrain like what, um, whether dark matter is uh, hot, warm, cold, whatever. So at this point, we've settled pretty much on um, the idea that um, dark matter is cold mm -hmm. in order to match with the um, observations of clustering on large scales. And um, what else? Okay, so how do you how do you test this 
you know, so this is Lambda CDM, Lambda for dark energy, as considered as a cosmological constant, CDM for cold dark matter. So Lambda CDM is the whole concordance model of cosmology. Um, and the way that um, these, as we were saying earlier, the way that like you go out and test a kind of theory like this is not necessarily by doing um, pen and paper calculations, but by running um, large scale simulations. So this started out by simulators um, uh, tracking, you know, massive particles, which are, you know, you know, many Wimps. tens of solar right. masses. No, no, Not on the large, yeah, think okay. about like, okay, so you're trying to simulate how structure forms in the universe. Like how do we get from, you know, a stage in the very early universe where there's, um, you know, everything is basically uniform. You have maybe these very small perturbations to the sort of universe that we find ourselves living in today where we have like this really intricate, you know, like cosmic web structure. We've got galaxies that themselves have all kinds of structure. We've got structure at even smaller scales. So how does all this stuff evolve? Um, to, you, to, to, run, to do that calculation, you run a simulation. Um, and then especially in the early days, um, these simulations, as you can imagine, are incredibly computationally expensive because you're literally <laughs> you're trying to get as much of the universe in there as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. And so what people did early on was to, okay, we're not going to simulate, um, we're certainly not going to simulate particle by particle, and we're not even going to simulate sun by sun. We're going to simulate, or galaxy by galaxy, we're going to simulate like, you know, tens and tens and tens of um of galaxies together, like ma these massive particles uh, in, and we're just gonna run them under gravitational interaction. And that will be the simulation. So you'll have massive bodies um, following gravity and we're gonna see how structure could emerge from this. Um, and if you run those kind and you know, over the over the years they've gotten fancier. Now you can do like crazy adaptive mesh stuff and you can have cells instead of particles, and the particles are get getting smaller and everything's getting more refined and sophisticated. Um, and if you've seen some of the outputs of these simulations, they're actually they're just totally stunning and beautiful um, to watch. Like it's like, yeah, watching the universe emerge in front of your face. It's really cool. But um the the outputs of these simulations um have uh, some interesting tensions with observations. So these these are the small scale challenges that come up in the paper that Siska and I wrote together. So um, the three that we talk about in the, that paper are, um, they have special names. They're, they've gotten enough attention to have special names. So there's um, the missing satellites problem, the too big to fail problem and the core cusp problem. And there are sometimes other problems that get lumped under small, small scale challenges, but these are three of the big ones that um, we found a lot of um, scientific literature about. So, um, there, the like just to take the missing satellites problem for for example, the problem here is that based on the predictions that you get from running these simulations that I was just talking about, you'd expect a galaxy like the Milky Way to have an order of magnitude more um, small satellite galaxies around it than we in fact observed in order of magnitude okay yeah so it just gets the data real wrong it looks yeah like. um and um you know like the core cusp problem to take it another example is about you know based on how based on um, galaxy formation simulations you'd expect um the uh 
the density profile of the galaxy to like zip up in the middle, but uh, galaxy profiles just look like they sort of core instead of having this cusp to them. And so you have this, again, this sort of mismatch between what you expect from simulation and what you get in the observations. So Seska and I were like, okay, well, this is interesting, right? Because like, what are, what are the scientists supposed to do? It looks like we have these kind of anomalies, you know? And um, our, like, it, it's all well and good to sort of sit back and watch history play out and see, you know, are these going to be resolved within the current theoretical framework? Are they going to require kind of um, minor modifications within the current theoretical framework? Are they going to require like throwing out the concordance model entirely and adopting an, a totally radically different cosmology? Like what, um, and then how, I mean, you, yeah, so we could just wait and watch history play out. But I think, you know, the philosophically interesting question here is like, can you, is there guidance in the moment for scientists trying to think through like how should we proceed when we have this discordance between the theory and the um, the theory and the data, and so the paper that Siska and I wrote um, tries to lay out all the options that physicists have available to them at this point and the different ways that the science could play out, and um, we eventually argue for. Um, based on these two kind of principles, like a principle of conservatism that, you know, tries to avoid unnecessary ad hoc modifications, and then a principle that tries to ensure that you can get kind of causal specificity and um, not get too tangled in undetermination between um, causal processes you're trying to distinguish. Um, and we use those to guide us to um, a kind of overall conservative uh, uh, position about the current, like large, uh, this current small scale challenges problem in cosmology, which is just to say, like, actually, um, we know that. So I told you that these cosmological simulations early on just involved massive particles um, under gravitational interaction, but we actually know from astrophysics that there's a whole lot more. <laughs> really interesting physics going on. Like you can imagine supernovae going off in these galaxies that are blowing off matter and really changing the structure of things or um, gas, you know, gas outflows, blah, 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 all this, you know, really cool like astrophysics that's happening that does actually uh, influence structure formation too. And because it's so complicated, it's um, hard to simulate and those simulations are still um, being I mean, we're starting to see them develop now and they're getting really exciting, but like there's a long way to go in terms of building all of the physics that we already know is there and relevant to structure formation into these simulations. And there are some hints that if you, once you start to include all that extra astrophysics, that some of these problems might even go away. Um, so our view is that like, we need, we need to deal with, we need to incorporate the physics that we already know is there first before we start, for example, um, fussing with the dark matter knob. So you could, you could say like, well, maybe dark matter isn't this kind of simple cold dark matter um, model that we um, started out with. Maybe there's self-interacting dark matter. Maybe we have other kind of fancy, maybe slightly warm dark matter. And um, that maybe that's gonna change the structure in various ways. And so, 
I think part of what Siska and I were trying to say is like, okay, there are all these knobs to turn, but if you start turning too many knobs at once without dealing with the stuff that you know is there <laughs> and you know is relevant to influencing the phenomenon that you're trying to study, um, then you're gonna get bogged down and underdetermination is gonna be really difficult to extract yourself from. So um, the best course, it is a, it's a um, prescriptive paper. Like the best course of action you say right now is to, um, work on doing this difficult work of incorporating astrophysics into the cosmological models and see where that lands us with respect to these anomalies. Um, and then we could kind of reassess about whether we're going to have to change our understanding of, of cold dark matter or change our understanding of cosmology much more broadly. Yeah. Uh, Nora, did the, I, I, found the, I found the haiku. Nora did an excellent job of summarizing the content of the paper and I have nothing to add there, but I can read you the haiku now. Oh, please, please. <laughs> <laughs> so it goes small scale challenges is a revolution nigh patience stay the course there you go <laughs> oh, beautiful and uh, also what a great way to end <laughs> so Nora, Siska, Vera and also Kevin in spirit though he is not here Absolutely. Uh, th thanks so much for putting this anthology together uh, I mean it's such an awesome contribution to the philosophical bestiary <laughs> And uh, thanks for having this conversation with me as well. Thank, Thank you so you. much for inviting us. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not <laughs> joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats. Jesus.